Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so happy to welcome Philippa and Burl Ellis to the podcast. They are both attorneys. Philippa is the Assistant General Counsel with the Home Depot, and Burl has twice been elected and served as CEO of DeKalb County, Georgia. They have 17-year-old twins, their son Burl III, and their daughter Victoria. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Philippa and Burl. Hi, Carol. Happy to be here. Hi, Carol. Beryl, we have been friends since our college days, and I've been thrilled to meet Philippa. And I'm so glad that you guys have joined me here today to share your story of how you parented through an incredibly challenging situation. So let's get started. I would like to start with an overview of this saga. So I will start by noting that in 2008, Burl was elected as DeKalb County's chief executive officer, and then he was reelected in 2012. And Burl, could you just give us a brief description of the scope of that office? Sure, Carol. Uh, good morning. It's a very uh, mayoral-like position. We have a county in metropolitan Atlanta of about 740,000 residents, and it has an executive branch, and it's headed by uh, not a mayor, but a, a person called the chief executive officer. So uh, after serving on a county commission for a couple of terms, I decided to run for CEO, and I managed a budget of about $1.3 billion a year and about 26 different departments delivering municipal services. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> yes, big job. So during your first term, a new DA was elected who decided to make you a target. How, how did this come about? How did you discover this? Well, uh, we discovered it in a very shocking way on, uh, I guess, in early January of 2013, when he raided our home in my office. Uh, he did it at mm. a time when I was actually a, a appearing before a grand jury that he had subpoenaed me to appear before under the premise of talking about the county's infrastructure projects. Uh, when I got there, I started getting asked some questions about uh, phone calls I had made to, uh, you know, they were very uh, vague questions about calls that I had made to uh, county vendors while I was raising money for my reelection campaign. After the, I left the grand jury, I was served with a search warrant and I discovered that the raid was taking place at that time. I uh, had not had my phone while I was before the grand jury, so I had no way of being contacted. But the thing that concerned me the most was my mother was home alone. And so and she was 83 years old at the time. And so mm. uh, that's when the whirlwind began. I think Philippa had some suspicions that this guy was a little shady before then. And I'll let her talk about that. But that's, that's how it all began. So I, I definitely want to get into the details. But can you just give us the, okay, so they raid your home while your 83-year-old mother is there. Do you have any sense of, did you know what they were looking for? Did how did they turn things upside down, Philippa? You've mentioned they you sort of found evidence in weird places that they were snooping? Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing about my mother-in-law being home is they knew she was home by herself because they were listening to all of our calls. But specifically, mm -hmm. we found some blue cut wires in our children's bathroom, the bathroom they share. There were cut blue wires. And it was odd if they were coming in to take out whatever they were looking for, then why would there be wires in our bathroom? And that bathroom is pretty pristine. There are no documents or anything in there. So that was um, that led us to believe that they were definitely in our home to plant microphones. And also, we discovered that they cut our alarm system. That hmm. was, you know, quite shocking. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it, it was it was cut. If I can just add to that. We learned that the uh, wires to our alarm system, our security system, had been disconnected before they came into the home. And uh, yeah, so we later discovered that. So there's a raid, and we're, we're going to back up into some more of the details, but there is a raid. There was an arrest. I mean, what, what happened after? Well, uh, there wasn't an immediate arrest. No, it, uh, for the next six months, we were living kind of in a life of limbo. Uh, there was no uh, immediate charges. There were no immediate charges brought forth. There was a lot of rumor going on about what was still happening with the grand jury. Of course, we hired lawyers and we talked at home. It changed our behavior. I can say that considerably. So mm -hmm. we were careful not to 
say much on our cell phones and we were careful uh, not to say a whole lot in our home. So we spent a lot of time at home whispering to one another because we were certain that there were listening devices playing at all in the home. And that caused our children to have some concerns as well. Mm. And I will add to this whispering, such as, what do you want for dinner tonight? (laughs) You know, just, (laughs) we became just fully concerned. We didn't want our personal lives to be publicly displayed. We weren't doing anything wrong, but, you know, are you picking up our son and daughter tomorrow from from soccer? You know, simple Mm -hmm, conversations mm -hmm. such as that. So I do want to turn now to, you mentioned the children being concerned. So your children who are now teenagers, they're now 17, going on 18. They were, what, seven at the time? And how did, now in in most instances, when parents are in the middle of something traumatic, their instinct would be to protect their children from knowing about it because sort of it's, if it's something that an adult is going to handle. But here this is being played out in a very public space. I mean, I, I, I imagine already that their news has picked this up and that you guys are, that people know what's going on. So what did you do? I mean, when you said the children were concerned about the whispering, understandably, how did you guys handle that? What was your perspective on how you were going to move forward in this traumatic circumstance with the kids? You know, Carol, in talking about protecting our children, that was one of the reasons we were whispering. We did not want them to feel as though they were living in a space that had been invaded. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so we were whispering. I do recall one of our kids saying, Mommy, there's a Fox News truck in our driveway. And so that was when that happened, we were at the point where we needed to have a conversation with them. So we leaned on our school resources and we are affiliated with a wonderful school, a very supportive school community. We contacted the school counselor and asked for number one, how do we handle this conversation with our children? Because we know there's going to be at least maybe one or two kids at school who may ask something about it. Our son shares mm-hmm. the name with, you know, shares Burl's name. So it's mm-hmm. easy to see and easy to find. Secondly, what resources might be available for us to seek family counseling and start therapy for our children and for us so that mm-hmm. we can come out on the other end intact? Mm-hmm. I'm interested and, and happy to hear, but interested that you immediately thought about therapy uh, for the family and, and particularly for the children. How, why was that? Had you had, was it from the school's recommendation or did you have a sense that from some other circumstance that that would be a good thing to do? Well, I had a sense or we had a sense that once we told them what was going on because we didn't have any answers, mm-hmm. it would be very difficult for them to comprehend. And as the school counselor told us with children, their imagination will assume the worst. We wanted them, we knew it would be a traumatic experience regardless as to how it turned out and wanted to make sure they had the support. And I know in our community, generally, we shy away from therapy. I had never had therapy before, but I Mm -hmm. just knew from that initial standpoint, once we had a conversation with our children and tried to explain it, we would need professional help to not only explain the circumstance, but also to deal with it and to make it through that journey. We needed help. And and, and Mm -hmm. I'll add to that, that in order to protect them, I do think we did shield them from some facts. Uh, I remember the night of the raid, we had some very close friends who allowed us to stay over their home. And so we told the kids we were having a sleepover over over, um, their (laughs) auntie and aunt's house. We, you know, they, they referred to them that way. I, uh, it was mm-hmm. my job to go back and then start to rearrange the house. Uh, so we didn't tell them at the time that their home had been invaded in such, in such mm-hmm. a way because mm-hmm. we wanted them to feel safe at home. We also explained to them later on after uh, charges came down, we explained to them that I had been sued and uh, they, they would pray with us about it every night. And they would sometimes mm-hmm. ask, well, what happens if you lose? And it was very difficult for me to tell my children I could face jail time or prison time. And so I simply would shift the conversation and say, well, we're just going to believe that everything's going to work out okay. And so some some things, some conversations were particularly difficult for me, at least. That's where therapy comes in to help us navigate those difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm glad you mentioned prayer because I know you two to, to be people of strong faith. And 
often people say that if they have faith and they have a church home, that they don't need to talk to anyone else. But I, I, I love that you, you all have acknowledged that both things are helpful. <laughs> I, I think, Philippa, you've said what it's a yes and kind of situation. <laughs> exactly. You can pray and we pray with our children. We pray with each other. However, the next step, the supplement to prayer can be therapy. And it was meaningful, and I am so happy that we made that decision and made it early. And I think, in my view, you don't seek therapy when you're already in trouble. When mm-hmm. I say in trouble, you mean what I mean is you don't seek therapy after you've already spun out of control with dealing with the situation. Therapy can help you walk through and keep you from spinning out of control in terms of trying to deal with your emotions or the psychiatric issues that can come with dealing with, with trying to activate your coping mechanism. You all are, okay, so there's, you're waiting, the, you, you're, you're in limbo. Burl, take us through what, what happens next. Uh, well, uh, between the raid and six months after the raid, there were a number of contentious hearings that we hired lawyers. And, and that was important. You use every resource at your disposal. <laughs> you, you, you use <laughs> your church. We had a strong uh, school community, as Philippa has said. And we had friends who supported us and we got a legal team as well. And we had therapists. So we, we did it all. And uh, there were a number of contentious hearings. And then the district attorney came out with a, a very vaguely worded indictment. I don't believe I've ever seen an indictment so vague. At the end of the day, we still weren't clear after reading the indictment exactly what he was saying I had done. And uh, so that started a whole process within the courts of uh, hearings and then followed by a trial, which ended with a hung jury and uh, more hearings and a judge who just uh, ruled against us at just about every turn. I mean, we we won very few pretrial motions or motions during the course of the trial. We went to trial a second time. And then there was a conviction on four of, uh, we started with 15 counts and nine counts ended up going to trial. And I was convicted on four about a day, I think, before the 4th of July break. So the jury was just ready to go and uh, they came out with the verdict and the judge denied me an appeal bond. And so I was immediately incarcerated at that point. I was taken to the jail and a week later I found myself in a prison. And, and Philippa, you've, you've talked about that as a parenting pivotal moment because you and the family, not the children, but you and your family, your mother-in-law, sister-in-law have been going to court regularly. Can you talk about that day that the conviction came down? Yes. On that day, the morning of the jury verdict came after three days of driving to the courthouse each morning and waiting. So I had my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, Burl, and I were in the courthouse waiting for three days. So this is day three. We ride together to take the kids to school. We drop them off before going to the courthouse. And Burl says, love you guys. I'll see you this evening, which is what we had said every day because we were in this mode of just waiting for the jury. And the first trial, the jury took quite some time. And we did not know that Burl would not see the kids that evening. The kids were expecting to see him. And so after the verdict, the judge did not allow his, Burl said, did not allow him to go home, which is what most nonviolent, you know, accused individuals are able to go home and get their affairs in order. And I'm sorry to interrupt, just being both attorneys, that was your your supposition, yes. your expectation, because you knew how things work. Exactly. So saying, I'll see you later, even no matter what happened, made sense. Well, and Carol, absolutely, because I, we had been sitting in the courtroom waiting, and while we're waiting on the jury, the the judge was continuing to handle matters. And mm-hmm. the day before, there was a person who was accused of molesting one of his children. He was convicted, sentenced, and then was allowed to go home to get his affairs in order. So that mm-hmm. this with this very judge, I sat in the courtroom watching other accused mm-hmm. and you know how they were being handled. So in this instance, when the kids were picked up from school, they're asking, where's dad? Mm-hmm. And... I actually could not handle going to pick them up. I needed to gather my thoughts. So mm-hmm. we had a, a babysitter who would sometimes help us pick them up from school. 
And she, I asked her if she would pick them up and bring them home. And then they came in and came into the house. And that's when I had the conversation with them. It was a very difficult conversation. One of the things too, as parents, you have to allow your children to see you in an emotional state. Mm -hmm. And so I did allow them to see me just, I was just in tears. And so it gave me an opportunity to talk to them about what an epic cry is. (laughs) So an epic cry is when you just let it go. And at the end of it, you feel better because I learned that from the therapist. Uh, She didn't call it an epic cry, but she said, if your children don't see you express emotion, it will affect their development as emotional beings. And so we just had an epic cry together. And then we just sat in silence. Mm-hmm. And it was just a feeling of numbness, but then walking our children through how to be resilient, that is when that journey began because they had not prior to then had the experience of what it meant to be resilient. Mm. Okay. So Burl, you have been led away. One only can imagine what thoughts are swirling through your head because this was even if the worst nightmare of being of the jury coming act with a conviction had happened, you didn't expect to just be whisked away. And so you're in the one end, you're in prison already, and Philip is home with the kids. How did you all begin to, how were you able to work together to to manage that time that you had to spend in prison? You you talked about the importance of making sure that Burl was still a very active father. How did you do that? Well, you know, one of the things is, you know, I, I research, you know, as a, in practicing law, that's just what I've done my entire career. And I began to research what's next. There was nothing out there. I know since then there are a lot of entities that provide information for parents of children of the incarcerated. Mm-hmm. But I just started researching, started calling. I even called to find out where he was and how to see him and when ultimately he ended up at a facility that was near Savannah and I couldn't get information about visitation. So we load, I loaded the kids in the car on that first weekend and I drove them down just so that they, even though I couldn't visit, drove them down to see where he was Mm -hmm. so that they could see because they went from going to school one morning to him just disappearing. And dad Burl was and is a very involved person, even as busy as he was, he would come in when they were toddlers, drop the briefcase, sit on the floor and spend time with him. So he was always very involved. So this was an immediate void. And we decided that once we were able to visit, we would visit every weekend so that he would not be there by himself. What I learned is that there are a lot of incarcerated parents who do not want their children to see them in that condition. Mm. Thanks. Once again, I keep going back to therapy. We had a strong faith community, strong, very strong church community and a very, the best therapist you could, family therapist you could ever imagine. And the school community, the common thread through the support they were providing is that you have to make sure your kids are kept in the loop because their imagination will run wild. So Mm -hmm. every single weekend, we did not miss one weekend. I think we missed one when our son had a soccer tournament. But And then we arranged for someone to be there with Burl for visitation. But as a, an entire family, we drove the six, sometimes seven hours, depending on traffic, the five to six hours, five on a, you know, we left at five in the morning, but we mm-hmm. drove every weekend to be there with Burl for visitation. And I wanted our children to see him. I thought it was more important to see him and be with him than it was for us to hide what incarceration looks and feels like. Mm -hmm. And Burl, how was it for you? How did those visits go for you? Were were they, I'm sure you were happy to see your family, but did you, did you feel any particular, was there any kind of way that you were trying to approach your children in this respect from where you were, were you, were you, did you feel like you had to sort of impart lessons or, or were you just able to normally interact? Well, there, you know, as normally as you can interact inside of a prison visitation room, but I, I, I think it, for me, it was essential. And it says something about having some resources available. I mean, I, I was so blessed that I had a family that was able to come visit me. I, I saw men in the prison who hadn't seen family for months, some for years. Mm. So I had a family and I, I lived for the weekend. I mean, I literally did because 
all day Saturday. I should say that Philippa and the kids would arrive at 8.30 as soon as visitation began. That allowed me out of the cell. And then I got to sit with them. And all we did is sit and chat and play little games that we would make up with each other, like 20 questions and things like that, for about six hours. And then they would leave and they would spend the night. And they would come back on Sunday and we just spent another approximately six hours. And then they would drive five or six hours back to Atlanta at the end of the day. So mm. that, that uh, really kept me going. And uh, was critical for me. I mean, I think it was important for me to see my kids and for them to see me. Philippa mentioned the first weekend she got there, I was not able to see them, but there was a basketball court on the prison. Now, I didn't have access to that court in the area where I was, but my son saw a basketball court and he remembered how he and I used to play basketball together. And so that made him feel a little better because he said, at least daddy has a basketball court to play on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, aside from that, I think what I would want to share is that prison is not a place where you should just flippantly send someone, I think, who's not a danger to society because prison is a very dangerous place. And I've been asked many times and people look at me and I think um, an apt description of me as uh, someone recently said to me is that I'm a Boy Scout. So I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty straight lace kind of guy and I find myself inside of a prison and I can say it's dangerous. It's not a humane place and it's a very scary place to be. And, but for, um, some divine intervention while I was there, I think it would have been very difficult to survive that environment. Mm -hmm. So one thing that it, it should be clear, but but I just want to say for the record that that you were completely innocent of all these charges, and you knew this. I mean, we'll we'll get to the resolution of the case in a minute, but you knew from day one until the end of this ordeal, you you knew that you were innocent and you maintained your innocence. I'm curious about how you were talking to your children about this because I mean, you know, we want to tell our children right for wrong and they're experiencing a circumstance where injustice is happening. I mean, and from, a, and, a, and they're pretty young. How did you, Burl and then Philip, how did you both talk with them about how wrong things were, but then how you had to move through the, you had to keep going, even though things were wrong? I think it was helpful, first of all, that we were on the same page, Philip and I. Uh, she never questioned for a minute my innocence. And uh, I mean, she just knew right off the bat. Uh, we had watched some prior actions from this district attorney, and she had her own sense of what he was about. And she knew that these charges held no weight as far as I was concerned. So I think that was helpful in the way we approached our kids. And you know, the interesting thing, and, and, and I guess I want to hear Philippa's answer to this question, but I remember praying at night with my kids, and particularly my son had a, had a specific prayer he would re repeat every night. He said, uh, please let my dad win his case. He did nothing wrong. And he, he actually said that before I told him I had done nothing wrong. And he said, and he wouldn't do anything wrong. So, I, you know, I, I believe that when we were faced with plea deals and opportunities to make this thing supposedly go away uh, quickly, that what sustained us was uh, the fact that our children believed in us and that we had told them that I was innocent. And I couldn't quite flip it around and tell them, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong, but I went ahead and said I did something wrong just to make it go away. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not the lesson for sure that I wanted them to take away. Mm -hmm. There's one other piece to that. He would also, in his prayer, say, because daddy is a good man. Mm. He said that it was every night he said it, and he may not say it in the same order every night, but he would always say that. And Burl is absolutely right. There were plea deals placed before him, which would have guaranteed that he would not have, well, not guaranteed because a judge has the ultimate decision, but the offer was that if he pled guilty, he would not be incarcerated. He would have house arrest. And I was adamantly opposed. I knew the risk of what it meant to not accept a plea deal. 
And because I had tried so many cases to juries in my practice as a civil attorney, you know, civil, handling civil matters, that juries are unpredictable. So we knew the risk going in, but standing on the truth is the lesson we wanted to teach our children. And we also wanted them to learn that standing on the truth may mean that the outcome may not be the best. It may be difficult, but standing on the truth, ultimately, you can live with yourself and sleep at night. And so that is what we wanted them to understand as we were explaining what the potential outcome could be. If daddy did not accept the plea deal, if we went forward with a jury trial. So our children along the way learned quite a bit about the legal system, the criminal legal system as well, and about appeals and all of that. Yes. So, so they knew, they knew your options. I mean, they were involved in the process to the extent, I mean, they were informed of the process as it was going forward. Yes. Huh. I talked, I talked to them about it. I didn't tell Burl I was talking to them about it, but I was again, leaning on the therapist's suggestion that you don't keep secrets. You can relay the information in a way that a child understands it, but mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. just stay away from keeping secrets. That can result in trauma in and of itself. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. Burl, I just want to go back for a minute to pick up on something that you had said to me earlier. You guys would play games when when the children came to visit, but you also really tried to stay involved in their ongoing lives. You talked about a scouting uh, manual. (laughs) Well, my my son was a Cub Scout at the time, and and uh, he's a he's a high achiever, and he was working towards his next rank in Cub Scouting, which was Weebelos. And uh, mm-hmm. in Cub Scouting is the parents are usually very involved with their children in Cub Scouting, and he didn't have me there, so I was able to order, or maybe Philippa ordered it for me. I'm not sure, but the uh, Weebelos handbook, and we uh, bought one for our son at home. And then we had one sent to the prison for me. And so when he came on weekends, we were able to talk about what he needed to do to meet the next requirement to work towards the rank of Weebelos. The interesting thing is not only did he uh, earn his Weebelos rank on time, I, I was home by the time uh, his ceremony came. So I was able to be there and oh. see him get his Weebelos rank. But we had a, the Cub Scouts had a, a race called the Pinewood Derby. And we were able to put together a little Pinewood Derby car and win the Pinewood Derby also. <laughs> so we we uh, we managed, you know, we did what we had to do and we stayed on track. You know, Carol, I was going to say, what Burl brings to mind, something I wanted to mention is that so often we are have too much pride to ask for help with our parenting. I remember the conversation I had with the Cub Scout troop and told them that there's no way I could do what dad did with helping Burl through his scout matriculation, I would just pull him from the troop temporarily until dad was home. And the scouting troop was very supportive. Had I not, had I been, had too much pride to have that conversation, it would have, there would have been a different outcome. They mm-hmm. recommended, mm-hmm. can he receive the scout book? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. ship one to him so that he can keep up, get one for Burl, and we want him to remain in the troop. So just asking for help is you have to put pride aside when you're going through adversity, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it just helped keep our family together in so many ways. And, and little Burl is an Eagle Scout today as a result, I think. Oh, all boy. So, yeah. <laughs> and he earned it at age 15. Yeah. Wow. So, yes. <laughs> so I want to just take a tick back to um, the time in prison because what you were talking about in terms of the difficulties there reminded me of, you. you've talked about phone calls. You were able to have phone calls, but... They were very expensive. And, you know, when you mentioned sending the book in, I'm, I'm grateful, as I'm sure you all are, that the prison allowed you to receive this book because it feels kind of arbitrary in terms of what you would be allowed to receive. So, so about those calls, I mean, you were able to talk regularly, but you've described it's a pretty expensive operation. Yes. And, you know, it's unfortunate, as Burl mentioned, if you don't have financial means, the men and women who are incarcerated will truly just be isolated for the length of their sentence and without the support that human beings are accustomed to having or could have to help them through that process. The calls were $5 a minute and you had to have a credit card in order to set it up. So you had to set up $50, chunks of $50 in order to have, to be able to place the calls. So we would just have 
quick one minute calls. And then, you know, by the time we would be able to get through a week, I had to put down another $50. You couldn't just pay as you go. They wouldn't charge your card. You had to have $50 banked with the phone system. And I just thought that is the only way he can talk to his children during the week because they don't have talk to our children during the week because the visitation hours were only on Saturdays and Sundays. And so to keep the family unit together, if you have a family member who's incarcerated, you really do have to have financial resources. And, and we spoke every day as mm-hmm. I think about mm-hmm. it, Philippa. And sometimes they were quick calls and sometimes a little longer. And the prison's listening in on the calls, but it, it still keeps you connected. Yeah, Philippa, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I imagine people who have family members who are incarcerated don't think about those kind of things in terms of um, how they can be helpful, but just not knowing that you needed these resources just to be able to keep in touch with the outside world. Tell me this. So you guys clearly built a very strong core unit in your family and, uh, and your children clearly were very informed and, and strengthened by this the family going through the struggle. But what about the outside world? Like, how did you keep I mean, clearly, this is always in the paper. I know that during the appeals process, there was a lot of of outreach and and sort of the viewer, many of us knew about what was going on. I mean, how did your children, I'm sure that most of the people around your children were supportive, but did you have to talk to them at all about how to deal with people that weren't supportive? Yes, I actually went through a role play with them the day it was time to go back to school because it was very public. It was in the news Mm -hmm. everywhere, in the newspaper, on the radio. It was everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I kind of went through a role play, asked some questions. And our son especially said, why why are we going through this? Daddy didn't do anything wrong. I know he's a good man. And so it's interesting throughout all of the entire school community, there was no issue. It was on the soccer field where, you know, Hmm. that was the only time he heard it. And our son stood up and said, no, my dad's a good man. You don't know my father. And this, this process that we, this journey we went through also taught our children how to advocate for themselves if, and stand within their own being and advocate for themselves and not run mm-hmm. from adversity. Mm-hmm. So there's so many life skills. You know, you try to find the, the lemonade, you know, <laughs> with the lemons. You try to, to find that the, the glass is half full. And we also talked a lot about the glass being half full and half empty. Yeah. We had a lot of, you know, that's how you can talk to a kid and they can visualize and understand what we're dealing with and try to find, you know, some good in every aspect of adversity mm-hmm. while you're dealing with it. And it also mm-hmm. came with some pain, I will add, uh, because that incident on the soccer field, while my son stood up for himself, it was to one of his fellow players, a, a guy he likes, but the guy says, your dad's going to jail. And uh, my son, he stood up for himself, but it stung. I mean, words do hurt because when he came mm-hmm. home from playing soccer and told us about it, he also broke down crying. And so that was another mm-hmm. teaching moment. It gave us an opportunity to talk about uh, what really matters. And what really matters is what you know, not necessarily what everybody says. Uh, everywhere we went, people would stop us. Uh, oftentimes they would stop us and say very supportive things, but every now and then someone would say something very harsh and biting. And, you know, you just learn to roll with it and realize mm-hmm. that they don't really matter. They don't know us. The people that you know and love mm-hmm. matter a lot more. And they were mm-hmm. behind us. And our children were witnesses to the conversa- the public conversations at the gas station, at the ATM. Well, that's before the digital... And we don't you go to the ATM anymore, but, uh, you know, the grocery store, we're pushing our cart and someone stops us in Sam's, you know, we would go to Sam's and pick up items. And there was so much, there was an outpouring of support that our children heard and were witnesses to that, you know, they were affected by that as well in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to, I want to finish the story though. So, so you served eight months in prison and that was the first time that you could be considered for release? Is that, how did it work that you were going well, to come out? Uh, what happened, I, I'd been in prison for eight months, as you said, Carol, and prison time moves very slowly. 
you control nothing in prison. You don't control the light switch. You don't control the thermostat. You don't control when you can come. You don't control when you can go. You have no privacy. I mean, I'm in what they call a dormitory at this point with uh, all kinds of folks. So no privacy when you go to the bathroom and when you go to shower. I mean, it's, it's a very controlled and controlling environment. Uh, before you can even go to visitation to visit your family, you have to be strip searched. And God forbid you have to go to the bathroom during that six hours while they're there because you then have to be strip searched when you leave the visitation room. And then you have to be researched uh, when you go back. So uh, all this is going on and it's been going on for eight months and time moves very slowly. And uh, as it turns out, on the first day that I was eligible for parole, because of an angel, and we always talk about the angels that we ran into, and because of an angel who had influence and said, it's time to get this guy out of here, I was released on Super Tuesday, March 1st, uh, 2013. It was Super Tuesday. And as I exited the prison, because as dangerous as, as it is, the uh, fellow, I hate to even call them inmates, but the fellow uh, men who were serving in the prison and uh, the correctional officers, they, they knew, you know, they knew that there was something different. They knew that this guy doesn't really belong here. So as I walk out, a chant starts and all the men start saying, it's Super Tuesday, Ellis. It's Super Tuesday. And I'm walking out of prison <laughs> and then the guards lined up and they shook my hand as I exited. Mm. That That's the story of how I got out. And then I was on probation for about another nine months. And I don't know if you want to talk about the appeal, but... I do, because that it, I want the full circle. Um, I, I want the, the full circle end to this. Well, the full circle end is that the district attorney who instigated the whole matter was soundly defeated at the ballot box and voted out of mm -hmm. office. And so that was the first good piece of, of news, not just for me, but I think for the whole community, because the community was on edge uh, for the entire time that this guy served in office. And then uh, we filed an appeal and the appeal went before the Georgia Supreme Court and they ruled unanimously in our favor and overturned the conviction. So that was a big win for us. And then our legal fees that we had expended were reimbursed by the government. And I returned to office to complete my term. Uh, there was only about three weeks left, though, at that point, Carol. But it felt really good and very special to go back to the office that our voters had elected me to. Oh, absolutely. And so, Philip, I just have to ask, I mean, you're, I know how hard you worked to manage this appeal, and, and I can only imagine how grateful you must have been when he was released as early as he possibly could have been, and then with the overturning of the conviction, and so the, the exoneration. How, how was the transition period, though, when he returned home? I mean, had you guys managed it such that you didn't miss a beat, or was, it, was there any kind of transition to have Burl back in the house? There was a transition in terms of just sheer joy. You know, we probably were overwhelming to Burl. He's never complained, but, you know, our kids were sitting in his lap. I remember he was trying to do some exercises on the floor. They were climbing on top of him. And the one thing, you know, going back to therapy, everything seemed fine. But I said, Burl, you have to get into therapy on your own, separate away from our family therapy, get into your own, you know, therapy mm -hmm. to help you through this. He seemed perfectly fine, but, you know, I just insisted. Mm -hmm. There was no, as I said, no outward reason other than you can't come from that and just transition back, you know. And we were thrilled that he was back in office. You know, his back pay was reinstated. You know, all, all of that, it just was just unbelievable. And I, I will go back to the day we went to pick him up. I didn't tell them because children have a tendency to talk about everything to everybody. I did not tell them mm -hmm. where we were going until we got in the car to go. And I had cell phones in hand in my purse because I didn't want there to be anything that could just throw a wrench in it. It was surreal to be driving on the highway this last time to go pick him up as opposed to 
you know, going to visit. And we got there as early as we could get there. And you can't just sit in a car at a prison facility. That's a security issue. But this is the first time, because there are times we got there early. There were times we got there early to visit and you had to leave the parking lot and come back a visitation. They allowed us to sit there for what seemed like forever for Burl to come out. And we just sat and sat and the kids had their face pressed up against the glass and we waited. And I recall the gates opening. We could see Burl before he got to the gates. We got out of the car, out of the car. The kids came and it was interesting because a guard standing at the gate started to shed tears. And it, it, it was interesting that it affected the guard. And this is the same guard we had seen on all of the visits. Mm-hmm. But it was just a wonderful day. Um, these are tears of joy. Yeah, he, he yeah, was absolutely. a very stoic guy. And in the words of the street, my family bum-rushed me <laughs> as, as, as I'm exiting <laughs> the gate. And, and he's holding the gate open. And w- they, they came and we're in this group hug. And and uh, we were just hugging each other so tightly. We weren't completely outside of the gate at the time, and so he he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't shut the gate back. And then I realized where we were, and I said, "Hey, hey, everybody, we need to step outside the gate." And as he closed <laughs> the gate, and we saw and this is a big man, a strong man, a man you would never think would cry. I see these tears mm-hmm. going down his face. And I heard him just kind of give this grunt that went like, mm. and and so it, it was quite a moment. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> just hearing about it. Um, so fast forward, your children have grown up. You're, it, it seems they have come through this spectacularly. As you said, they've high, they're high achievers. And in fact, your daughter has an interest in criminal justice. I mean, I'm curious as to how they've kind of processed all of this in the ensuing years. You know, it's it's interesting. Our daughter specifically is is interested in law school. And before, she never had an interest in law school. In fact, said she had no desire to even consider it. But after this process, she became interested in not only the, so- the social justice aspects of what it means for an individual to go through the criminal legal system, mm-hmm. but has specifically shown an interest in helping those who are wrongfully incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And she's taken a class at her school uh, that centers around that. And the school has invited individuals, mm-hmm. you know, who've been helped by the Innocence Project. And, and she just has... A, a passion for it, which I understand after having lived through it. And she's at mock trial camp right now, this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sleep, sleep, wow. away. Yeah, sleep away yeah. camp. <laughs> yes. I, I, first of all, Philippa and Burl, I so appreciate you joining me and sharing this experience. I, I knew it had a happy ending that I'm putting air quotes around in the sense that justice was ultimately served. Not that, I mean, Injustice began the process. It was, but, but you were able to clear your name and, but I'm very grateful that as awful as it was, that it came to, it, it ended, it, it ended in a much better place. But I'm also particularly grateful for the way that you have approached this in this conversation in terms of how parents who are dealing with trauma can handle it with their children. It, it is, you know, I'm going to keep, there's so many things that you have said that I just feel are, are applicable so far beyond the situation. This concept of an epic cry, I mean, I love that. <laughs> and I, I think it is for parents and children of all ages, it's it's a very valuable one. <laughs> the, the other really interesting takeaway, which you guys have, I'm sure you've been clear about, is the, the, the blessing of, of resources in this process. I mean, Without the resources to have the proper counsel and have the both both legal counsel and personal counsel, therapeutic counsel, your journey would have been so different. Hopefully, you would have had the same outcome, but the process would have been so much more debilitating. So I say that to say that for people who are listening, who perhaps don't have access to this many resources, I hope that the conversation about what can be done is helpful in the sense that if there are there are there's free therapy and there are organizations that help people who who need it. And in fact, if if you know to the point of trying to, if there is someone incarcerated and you're talking to people about 
how they can be helpful. I mean, if there's a phone fund, I mean, who would even know? But but a phone fund could be helpful. So I, I just tell me tell me just a, a little bit. Of, you can I want you to be real parents and brag a little bit about your children. You've told me they're very high achievers. Both of them are are um, what you said straight A students in school, and so. How proud must you both be of how they have come through this? You know, I, I will. I look at it as though they have weathered the storm with the support needed to do so. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I didn't even mention my law firm was very supportive. And a number of times, my law partners, members from the church, members from the school, parents from the school who provided meals. And there were times I didn't feel like cooking and, you know, provided small wonder. Yes, <laughs> provided meals came to court to show support. And seeing our kids come through it, it is truly a blessing, Carol. It is truly mm-hmm. a blessing because I, I feel as though there could have been a different outcome if we didn't have the support, love and support of family, friends, community. And if we hadn't asked for help, just you have to ask for help, even though you feel as though you can do it alone. I think they were able to gain the resilience they needed to make it through and to stay on course academically and emotionally and socially and psychologically. No, I just want to say uh, I'm very proud of our children, not only for their academic accomplishments, but I think they're good, principled people. And uh, I think part of it is what they learn through adversity and going through this whole process. They learn to uh, some good lessons about staying the course and standing on truth. And, and I, I see that in them. And hopefully those lessons will stick with them throughout life. I was thinking the same thing that goodness knows you would never have wished for this horrific circumstance and this traumatic journey. But to your point, Philip, uh, lessons of adversity and res- being resilient in the face of adversity are are so valuable. And again, to your point about looking for the lemonade in in the lemons, I mean that your children have been able to get that resilience, which I'm sure will stick, <laughs> has has been has been a blessing truly. So I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you again so much for this conversation, and. Now I'm going to ask you to play, as everyone does, the GCP lightning round. (laughs) So I have four quick questions. Are you ready? We're ready. Yes. Okay. All right. So I want each of you to give me your favorite poem or saying. Philippa? Mine is, uh, to whom much is given, much more is required. Mm. And I think that for me, the poem that I recite it often uh, through difficult times in life is If by Rudyard Kipling. Oh, man, I love that. I I love both of those quotes. But yeah, no, if (laughs) that's a great one. Okay, so now I'm going to ask each of you to give me a favorite children's book. And it can be one that you grew up with or one that you loved reading to your children. I would say The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. Um, It was my effort to teach the children about classism. Oh, that's right. I remember the Sneetches with the stars on their bellies. And the- <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, exactly. And somewhere around this house, the Sneetches book uh, still exists. Yes. <laughs> For me, uh, because we used to read to our, our children every night before they went to bed, mm-hmm. uh, Good Night Moon would be the one. And I don't know how effective it was in putting them to sleep, but it made me fall asleep every night. So... <laughs> <laughs> that that would be my pick, Carol. <laughs> I loved Good Night Moon. It is it is yes, it's it's sleep inducing for everyone. For adults particularly. <laughs> <But> in, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in a very sweet way. Yeah. <laughs> so give me I'm gonna ask you both for a parenting moment that you'd love to do over and a parenting moment where you knew you'd nailed it. Let's start with the do-overs. And this doesn't have to be deep, just sort of things that you could, if you could erase it and redo it, you would do it. I remember our children were maybe in the first grade and I heard our daughter ask her twin brother, Burl, who do you like better, us or them? And I interrupted and said, hey guys, you know, what are you, you know, talking about? After our son said, us, our son responded and said, I like us better. But I interrupted and said, hey, you know, try to make light of it. I wish I had remained silent to hear, hear how that conversation would play out. <laughs> and, and the them was was the uh, two of the us. The parents. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
about you, Burke? Well, uh, for me, uh, we had a timeout chair so that when our kids needed to be uh, disciplined, we would take them to the timeout chair and we would have a discussion with them. And so it seemed to be a good way to teach them whatever lesson they needed to learn at the particular time. But on one occasion, I tell my son, I, and I don't know how, he was very young at the time. I said, Burl, come with me to the timeout chair. We have to have a discussion. And he actually said, he couldn't quite say the word discussion. He said, secession, secession, with a big <laughs> smile on his face. And I realized the timeout chair and the discussion didn't quite have the impact on him <laughs> that I had hoped it would. <laughs> He's like, yay, time with daddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so now tell me a moment when each of you knew you'd nailed it as a parent. Uh, there are so many moments, but one that comes to mind is just when dad came home, our kids seemed to be intact emotionally, mm -hmm. mentally, psychologically. And just that moment, they were, they seemed the, just a transition. So the moment is a long moment of watching them transition beyond this difficult journey we encountered. Oh, gee, that's a tough one for me. Um, you know, I never really feel like I nail it. Uh, I, I just hope maybe it's a combination of everything they see. Uh, Philippa has taught me to try to listen more and talk less. So I think sometimes when I ride uh, to school in the morning, when I just sit back and listen to the things they have to say and don't uh, offer my opinion until they ask, I think that's when I'm at my best as a parent. Those are really, really great answers. And I thank you so much again for being with us today. Thank well, you, thank Carol. you, Carol. It's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.